Turn with me in your Bible. Acts chapter 1. begin reading in verse 15 today and read down through the end of the the chapter. Context is following the ascension and of course uh, prayer meeting that followed that with the disciples. We also know they were praising God in the temple and uh then Peter stands up, and that's the section that we've begun to study, and uh, we'll finish, Lord willing, this morning. Verse 15, the scripture says, at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, that field was called Hakeldama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate. And let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. So we began to look at the waiting witnesses, the subject of our study this last week, and just continue concluding that with these people who would include the 11 apostles who are named down there in verse 13. The one, of course, that's not mentioned is Judas Iscariot, but then he becomes the subject of the next portion of the chapter as they're recognizing the choice of God uh, in a replacement for him. And why I say recognizing, as you look at the process in this chapter, it looks like they're choosing the 12th apostle. But what they're actually doing is they're asking the Lord to show which one he had chosen. You see that in the prayer in verse 24. You read down 
to verse 24 in the context of that prayer, they're actually asking the Lord, who knows the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen. And so these waiting witnesses, as they're anticipating Pentecost, they're waiting for the coming of the Spirit. They are letting the Lord, who chose the first 12 apostles, and one of them turned aside, choose the replacement for Judas. I was thinking about the scene here, as well as the circumstances in the days intervening between the resurrection of Christ and then eventually his ascension, but then the day of Pentecost. And what's taking place during that time? Well, there's obviously restoration that's taking place. Jesus, as he's appearing to the apostles, they are not only recognizing him as risen, but there's restoration that needs to take place in their lives. Thomas, of course, was not with them when Jesus first appeared. Thomas was not believing. But Christ graciously came to the apostles and restored Thomas, gave him the opportunity to put his hands on the wounds in Jesus' hands and to see his side, to touch his side. There's also the restoration of the one who is speaking here in verses 15 down through 26. It's Peter himself. Remember, Peter had betrayed the Lord and he had gone out and he'd wept bitterly. And he needed restoration. And if you read the end of the Gospel of John, John records the restoration of Peter, the Lord giving him opportunity to just as he had betrayed Jesus three times, to then confess his love for Jesus three times. Although he did not claim the same kind of devotion that singled him out from the rest of the apostles as he had done before the cross, Jesus was still restoring him. You can imagine the other disciples fearful, doubting Jesus is restoring their understanding. He's giving them understanding. In some cases, they didn't understand things that they'd even experienced. And he's once again gathering them together into one community. He has told them to wait. And they are unified. Again, as we look at the context of verse 15, the very the verse right before tells us that these 12, these 11 rather, were devoting themselves to prayer. They were united with the rest of the apostles. They were together, and there was a oneness, a fellowship. And there's something uh, beautiful about this as you watch the book of Acts unfold. How many people do we have? We have 11. We have in verse 15, 120 persons named in this particular meeting. We know there are more disciples than that because Jesus, remember, appeared to 500 brethren at once, book of 1 Corinthians tells us. So there are many disciples, but in this particular meeting, there's 120, and they're united together. They're purposing together. And it's a wonderful thing to think in terms of what God did, if you read through the book of Acts, to spread the gospel to the world from that small number. United, praying, and then as God pours out his spirit, witnessing together. It's God working through his people. I read a sermon this week by 
Spurgeon, speaking of a divided heart, is the topic of the sermon. But he says in the introduction of that sermon, he says, Oh, my brethren, the smallest church in the world is potent for good when it has but one heart and one soul. When pastor, elders, deacons, and members are bound together by a threefold cord that cannot be broken, they are mighty against every attack. But however great their numbers, however enormous their wealth, however splendid may be the talents with which they are gifted, they are powerless for good the moment they become divided amongst themselves. Union is strength. Blessed is the army of the living God in that day when it goes forth to battle with one mind and when its soldiers, as with the tramp of one man in undivided march, go onwards toward the attack. Well, they had found one who had not been with them. He was with them in person, but he wasn't with them in spirit. He had even, as we look at the Gospels, performed miracles. He had preached the Gospel. But in the end, he did not believe it, and he betrayed Jesus. He's the one, according to Peter's argument in verse 16, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Betrayed him with a kiss. And it's Judas that is the focus here in the first part of the passage that we're considering. We considered Judas last week. We considered what took place both in the record of Matthew's gospel, as well as the record here. And we saw, I hope that you saw the complementary accounts. The field of blood, why is it called the field of blood? Well, it was the price of blood that paid for it. There are those who believe that it's called the field of blood, according to what's said in this passage, that it has to do with Judas's death and the awfulness of that death. Verse 19, it says, it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, that field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. So I said last week, it depends on who you talk to. Why is it called the field of blood? Well, it's got a couple of reasons. This is probably the one that most people thought of. But people who knew and eventually read Matthew's gospel would also know of the plot and the betrayal and the purchase of this piece of property, and where it came from. It came as a result of Judas receiving funds, pieces of silver, for the blood of Jesus, and then Judas going back and throwing that silver into the temple, and then these principled chief priests and scribes and leaders of the people took those pieces of silver and said, we can't put this into the temple treasury. It's holy. You got to do something else with it. So what do they do? They purchase a field. It seems the same field where eventually they buried strangers, according to Matthew's gospel, which then resulted in verse 20, that field being empty, except for the graves, of course, that were there. I said, how do you ensure that a field would be empty? Well, build a cemetery there. Nobody really wants to live there. And this is all foretold in the Psalms. If you remember, you look at verse 16, Peter is arguing that scripture, notice what he says, had to be fulfilled. And then he describes the Holy Spirit's part of that. Of course, he foretold it. David was the prophet who spoke it. 
but it was concerning Judas. And then if you look at verse 18 and 19, if you have in your Bible parentheses, I think the reason for that is many believe that what Luke is doing here is he's adding that parenthetical comment so that we'd understand what happened to Judas. In his gospel, he doesn't record the same detail that Matthew does, but we have the detail here. And so following that parenthetical comment, it's again Peter who is speaking, who says, for it is written in the book of Psalms. And he quotes two passages in Psalms. First of all, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it and let another man take his office. So what Peter does here is he's quoting scripture, scripture which is not merely the words of man, it is the word of God, verse 16 again, which the Holy Spirit foretold. The Holy Spirit spoke these words that needed to be fulfilled. The argument that some make that Peter is mistaken here, I think they'd have to explain why he's quoting scripture here that has to be fulfilled. He's talking about the process of inspiration where the spirit is involved in moving the scripture writer to write what he wrote. One person defined it this way. This is B.B. Warfield, who wrote The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible. Inspiration is a supernatural influence exerted on the sacred writers by the spirit of God, by virtue of which their writings are given divine trustworthiness. And that certainly applies to what they write about their present situation, about the state of things, about God's creation, but also about what's going to take place in the future. And David may have been like those other prophets who searched and sought to understand what God's Spirit was indicating as they wrote. But David is a prophet, and he is speaking. If you turn over for just a moment to Acts chapter 2, you might not even have to turn the page, you might. But David is a prophet. David is a king. We think of him in terms of his being king. Verse 29 of Acts chapter 2, as Peter's arguing for the resurrection, he says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet, that's speaking of David, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ or the Messiah, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. We think of David, we tend to think of him as a king. He was also a prophet. There he's prophesying of the resurrection of Christ, but he also prophesied of the betrayal of Christ and what would happen to Judas. That's what we find in verse 20 of chapter 1. These two passages that Peter refers to takes us back to Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And Peter, you might say this time, I heard one person talking about this time for the disciples, and they said they must have been studying the scripture during this time because their understanding of who Jesus is as the risen Messiah would have just changed their perspective, and their their understanding of the scriptures would have changed. Remember what it says in Luke 24, that Jesus is opening their understanding as he's explaining to them the scriptures and what was necessary to take place uh, did happen. 
So let's just take a moment, keep a finger here, turn over to Psalm 69. I just want to see the context of this first prophecy. Psalm 69. If you were here on Sunday nights when we went through this psalm, you may remember that this is a messianic psalm. The focus in a number of the verses directs our attention to the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, You can see in verse 1, excuse me, well, verse 1, save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. He pictures himself as being sunk into the mud and waters flowing over him, and he's crying out to God. But look down at verse 9. You recognize this for the God, from, from the Gospels when Jesus cleansed the temple. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And then the rest of the verse, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In the case of the first part of that verse, it's quoted in John's Gospel. The latter part of that verse is quoted in Romans. If you keep on reading through the psalm, verse 21 as he's speaking of the circumstances that he's in being persecuted by those who are looking on. It says, they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Of course, that's quoted in the context of Jesus being on the cross and what they offered him to drink as he suffered. Verse 22 is quoted in Romans. But verse 25 is the verse that is quoted here in Acts chapter 1. And this is in the context of a curse that is uttered against the enemies of the Davidic king. Because of their mistreatment and abuse and persecution, Because they gave him gall for his food, verse 21, for his thirst, they gave him vinegar. The response to that is verse 22, may their table before them become a snare when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May may their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them and may your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. See the context? The context here is of God's judgment being poured out upon the enemies of the Davidic king. One of the judgments is that their land be desolate. Not only would they not be there, but no children after them. And so what's taking place there in Acts chapter 1, as Peter argues, is that very existence of a field that is no longer inhabited was evidence of a curse of God. Did God respond in judgment to the crucifixion of Christ? Well, I think you could say, based even on the history of Jerusalem, the answer is yes. It wasn't long after Christ was crucified that Titus and the Roman army encircled that city. And if people tried to get out of the city, they were being crucified outside the city. And eventually those walls were broken down. And the Romans went in and did literally destroy the temple, desecrated the temple. The generation, that generation, 
that would have seen the crucifixion of Christ, the ones who agreed and never repented and stayed in Jerusalem would have seen that destruction. Was God angry? Yes, he was angry. He also was merciful. So when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, that prayer is answered. It's going to be answered in the next chapter here in the book of Acts. But with regard to Judas and God's response to his sin of betraying Christ, God is dealing with Judas in terms of his own person as he hung himself, giving him over to those wicked thoughts and his pursuit of them. But then beyond that, Judas went to, as the writer of Acts puts it, he went to his own place. Turn over to Psalm 109. Notice the context here as well. Verse 1, O God of my praise, do not be silent. For they have opened the wicked and deceitful mouth against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without cause. In return for my love, they act as my accusers, but I am in prayer. Thus they've repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. Verse 6, appoint a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few and let another take his office. Okay, again, this is hatred for mistreatment of the Davidic king. And what is the response? It's an imprecation. It's a calling down a curse. And the curse that Peter argues here for is verse 8, let his days be few, let another take his office. Now, it's specifically the latter part of that verse, but I think if you think about Judas, he did not live out his full life because he took his life. God had a purpose, certainly in allowing Judas to go his own way, but God still judged Judas for his personal actions. And there's certainly uh, things worth meditating on, thinking about with regard to Judas and his actions. But look at verse 8, again, end of the verse, let another take his office. Let someone replace him. Turn, if you would, back to Acts chapter 1. Why did Peter quote these two passages? Why is he looking at the book of Psalms? Well, Jesus had actually directed the disciples to look at Psalms in his teaching. In John 15, when Jesus is speaking of the hatred of the world and the hatred of Israel for him, he says, they have done this to fulfill that which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. So Jesus is drawing attention to things that were written about him and written about his circumstances from the book of Psalms. That's why I say that likely this is a time of investigation. It's a time of of Bible study, you might say, as they're seeing things from a different vantage point. Now Judas and his actions come into bold relief. There was supposed to be someone who betrayed 
the Messiah. And what was supposed to happen in God's judgment? Well, his homestead, his tents were to be desolate. No one was supposed to dwell there. Well, that's fulfilled. Someone else is supposed to take his office. If you think Peter is acting, again, in isolation here without God's direction, I'd have to say, well, Jesus is actually drawing their attention to the Psalms. We don't know what he said in those days following his resurrection as he's teaching them early in this chapter. It does stand to reason that this 12th apostle was just their way of expressing their faith in the Lord in the fact that he was risen, that he's in heaven, that he has a choice for who is going to represent the nation as the 12th apostle. And we've already looked at and considered some thoughts about why this is necessary. It's not just the number 12, although the number 12 is significant. There's also a future destiny for each of the apostles beyond the witness of their lifetime There are 12 thrones to be occupied in the coming kingdom, as Jesus spoke of, and one has abdicated his throne. He turned aside. Now, Judas did die, but it does seem that what Peter is arguing is that Judas turned aside from this office. Notice what it says in verse 26. It says, to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside. So Judas actually apostatized. He left a place of ministry, and that needed to be fulfilled. That needed to have a replacement, and that's Peter's argument. Someone else needs to take Judas's position, his office, as you might say, and as as it says there in verse 20. It's on the basis of that that he says, verse uh, 21, therefore it is necessary. It was necessary, verse 16, that Scripture would be fulfilled. It says, look back in verse 16, verse uh, the first part of the verse, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. And now it's also Scripture that is directing Peter to propose what is taking place in the rest of the chapter here. Now, I think this is actually good leadership. This is good biblical leadership when the church is being directed by the scripture. The leader is drawing attention to the scripture and the church is moving in action because the scripture says to. That's really what the church ought to be doing. That's what God's people always ought to be doing. The scripture needs to be the guide. Scripture had to be fulfilled. Now scripture is the guide as to what takes place following this. Peter is arguing it's necessary, and then he gives the qualifications for Judas's replacement. Now, if you think about Judas and his time with the rest of the disciples, he actually fit this category. Verse 21, it says, therefore, it's necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John, but there's something that Judas doesn't fit. And that is until the day he was taken up from us. Judas went out and hung himself before he ever saw the resurrected Lord. Judas was disqualified from being an apostle. Had he continued? Yes. If he had seen the Lord? Yes. But of course, his own heart and his 
defection resulted in, he's not qualified. But Peter gives that qualification, and notice what he says. Look at verse 22. Beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. So he's, he's giving, there's actually a figure of speech here. The figure of speech is, uh, it, it's basically taking two elements that relate to time, one at the beginning and one at the end, and saying that person needs to have experienced this. And then, of course, it's implied that it's everything in between, right? Because we would say the baptism of John, that's John the Baptist's baptism, all the way until the ascension of Christ. That's what it says, that he was taken up from us. We understand that the person who's going to represent God's people and be an apostle also has to know what's in between. And it even says right in the next phrase that this person had to be a witness of his resurrection. So it's baptism of John, the day he was taken up, a central focal point of his testimony is the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. All of those things, a person must have experienced those things and been witness to those things. Now, I want to be careful because that's not actually saying that the person had to witness the baptism of Jesus. Look at what he says, verse 22, beginning with the baptism of John. He's really talking about a time period there. The time period which is recorded in the Gospels as John came preaching repentance. He's preaching about someone who's coming after him. People are coming to John to the Jordan, to be baptized. And there were many people in Israel who did that. As they asked John, what does repentance mean? John was giving them instruction about what repentance means. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot would have all been among those. They knew about the baptism of John. They had responded to the preaching of John. And John had drawn attention not to himself. He would constantly deflect. And when Jesus came on the scene, it was he must increase. I must decrease. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one whom you should believe in and trust in. And so it's from that time all the way until the day of the ascension. Somebody who fits that category must be chosen or taken, rather, to be a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, is there anything magical? I, I use that word facetiously about the number 12. 12 apostles. Well, if you read through the scripture, 12 oftentimes comes in connection with the people of God. There are, of course, 12 tribes. There are 12 patriarchs. There were 12 stones of memorial at the crossing of the Jordan in Joshua. In Revelation, there are 12,000 from each tribe that are chosen. There's a woman clothed with the sun who has uh, 12 stars. There are 12 gates of pearl. There are 12 angels at those 12 gates, 12 foundations on which are 12 names of the apostles. The tree of life has 12 kinds of fruit. You kind of think 12 maybe does have some significance. 
this has reference to the people of God. And with regard to Israel, this is basically saying something about present-day Israel. There are 12 new witnesses who are leaders among God's people. Twelve who, in Jesus' teaching, were going to sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes. Luke chapter 19. I think it's right to say that Jesus, in his choosing of 12 apostles, was choosing those who, yes, would be witnesses, but he is actually administrating his kingdom. He's preparing for that earthly kingdom, and he's told them such. And it's really a statement against the leaders of the day that Jesus would be 12, or 12 choosing 12 so that the people would understand there's something about the 12. They keep on referring to them as the 12. Yes, he's administrating his kingdom. This is not the time, you could say, of his earthly kingdom, but he's preparing for that event when one day he will reign on his glorious throne. The 12 apostles will sit on those thrones, but one of those thrones has been abdicated. One of those thrones is empty because someone chose to do something else, betray the king. And so the response after the qualifications, Peter's made his argument scripturally. The response to following these qualifications is to nominate two. Verse 23 says, so they put forward two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. <clears throat> the reason for the explanation of Joseph's name is because it seems Joseph was a common name, and this is explaining which Joseph this is, and that he had another name that he went by, Justice, and then Matthias. What does that tell us about these two men? You haven't heard their name until now. But from the time of John's baptism, through the ministry of Jesus, these two individuals were faithfully following without having the limelight, so to speak. Some would say maybe they were in the 70 because Jesus uh, had 70 disciples, but then chose 12 of them. They could be in the 70. He doesn't say that here. But these are just men whose names we didn't know until now, and they've been serving, following faithfully. And now it's time for God to appoint one of them to an office. I think there's something here to encourage us, especially as we think about the Gospels. There were many disciples of Jesus. If you think just in terms of 12, you have to remember those 12 were apostles. There were many disciples. There's 120 here. There were 500 mentioned in 1 Corinthians. There are many, many disciples, many whose names we don't know but we're following Jesus and we're with him even through all of the teaching that he gave, the miracles that he did, the times when there was opposition to him and rejection of him, but these disciples didn't leave him. They stayed with him. They kept on following him. When others went away, they didn't follow those who rejected Christ. They stayed and they remained faithful to Christ. Did they struggle with what happened at the time of the crucifixion? Well, even the 12 apostles, the 11, 11 apostles did. So that's possible as well. We're just not told much about the story of these two individuals, but we do know they're put forward. So they must have been 
uh, in keeping with the qualifications, they must have been with Jesus and the apostles during that time from the baptism of John until the very ascension of Jesus into heaven. They must have been witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. And so they fit. Notice they're not putting themselves forward. They're not putting themselves forward for advancement. They're not saying, me, 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 pick me. It says they, that is this group of 120, recognizing the qualifications, it came down to these two, but lest they be the ones to choose, they put two forward. That's part of the process here. They're choosing in one sense, they're recognizing these two individuals as fitting the qualifications, but they're letting God have the final choice. They're letting, in my view, Christ have the final choice. And then, obviously, in connection with leading by presenting scripture, making a scriptural argument as to their course of action, verse 20 and before that, now in verse 24, another element of right and good decision-making is prayer. Coming to God and asking for his guidance. We read this morning in Proverbs 2, the Lord gives wisdom out of his mouth comes understanding. If there's a choice to be made, he knows the best choice. He can reveal the best choice. And here, as they pray, let's notice this prayer. It's a wonderful prayer. Draws attention to who God is, who specifically, I believe, Christ is. And it's looking for him to make this decision or show them what decision he has made. Notice their prayer. Verse 24, they prayed and said, you, Lord, you, absolute master. Kyrios is a word that in the New Testament refers to that idea of absolute master, but it also is used as a replacement for, or you might say a translation of, the divine name, Yahweh. So in the New Testament, when you see Alleluia, God's name is there, but oftentimes it's Lord that reflects his name. When you find Old Testament quotations where the word Lord is in the quotation in the New Testament, you really have to kind of look at the Old Testament context to see, is it talking about Adonai Lord, or is it Yahweh Lord, or sometimes it's both? Adonai means absolute master. Yahweh is God's personal name. He's the self-existent, sovereign, living, changeless God who rules over all. They're using Kyrios here, and who is this person who they're speaking to? Which person of the Godhead? Well, look back at verse 6. So when they'd come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, that title is given to Jesus. Is it appropriate to call the Father Lord? Yes, it is. But even as they specify the qualifications there in verse 21, it says, therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. And you might say, well, who who is this? Is, is it in the context it's Jesus, but it can be applied to the Father. I'd add a third element, and that element is that who chose the other 
apostles? Who's the one who chose them in the first place? Jesus, remember, called the 70 to him, chose 12 of them as apostles, and then sent them out. I'm just saying that Jesus himself is Lord. He's called Lord in this chapter. He's the one who chose the 12 apostles in the first place. And now it comes down to the replacement for Judas, whom Jesus chose. It stands to reason that this would be Jesus again, who's now ascended into heaven. But they know that he hears them. They know that they can ask him things in his name. They can also pray to the Father. But in this decision, in my view, and based on those reasons, they're addressing Christ. And part of the reason I argue for that is, look at what comes next. Who know the hearts of all men. Before they ask him, they acknowledge that he knows the hearts. God knows the hearts. But Christ knows the hearts. Of course, the Father Son and Holy Spirit all know the heart. Genesis chapter 6, 5, it's Yahweh who saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's Yahweh who said to Samuel, for Samuel 16, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, for I, because I've rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Yahweh looks at the heart. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, I, Yahweh, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. This is a divine decision. Keep a finger here, turn to Revelation chapter 2. The letters given to the churches. Verse 19, as he addresses, by the way, who's addressing the church? Verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance that and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and I and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. Okay, who is speaking? Verse 18, the Son of God, whose eyes are as a flame of fire. Verse 23, and I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Now there, in Revelation, he is ruling the church. He is promising judgment for the sin that's taking place there, and he knows their hearts. Back to Acts chapter 1, 
you, Lord, who know the hearts of all men. Not only does he know the heart of man back in Genesis, but he knows the hearts of these two men. He knows which one he's chosen. And of course, he chose David back in 1 Samuel 16. That was not necessarily to pass judgment on all of David's brothers. It was to say that there's something in this heart that I'm choosing for my purpose. God looks on the heart. Now, if David had anything of righteous acting and believing and doing in his heart, it was because of grace, but nevertheless, God sees the heart. And he knows these two hearts, Matthias and Joseph. They could see the outside. They could recognize these two are qualified, but in terms of the heart of these two men, which one is he going to choose? Well, they ask him to do that. You, Lord, absolute master, I believe they're speaking to Christ himself, who know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two you have chosen. And so this is a relying on God to make this choice. He's already made it, but he's showing them. And what is this person going to do? Look at verse 25. It says, to occupy this ministry, this place of service, and a, a, a related, but you would say not quite equivalent statement is apostleship. Apostleship is ministry, but not all ministry is apostleship. That's why I say that. But to be sent forth by Christ to be a to be to be give testimony to the resurrection in this representative and official way, it's this ministry that Christ has chosen someone for. They're asking him to reveal that. And again, even in the context of their prayer, they're referencing Judas's defection, Judas's sin that resulted in the necessity. Notice that in the end of the verse, verse 25, it says, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. What place did he go to? Well, you could say he turned aside from the ministry to go to his own place. He went to that field. He took his life, but that wasn't the end of Judas. Judas' spirit lives on. Judas will be resurrected with the resurrection of the dead. Where is Judas? As the son of perdition, he is in hell forever. Which is true for everyone who rejects Christ. And it is a sobering reminder here in this chapter that there are consequences for turning away from Christ There are consequences for not believing in Christ, just simply not believing. Unbelief is a sin. To not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the risen Lord, is a sin. And it's worthy of eternal punishment. So come to Christ. Turn to Christ. Put your trust in Christ. Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And in the context of this prayer, Someone has to replace this one who was among God's people and appeared to be one of them, but at a certain point he defected and showed himself for who he truly was. And then they make the decision, or at least it looks like they're making a decision based on verse 26. Again, God has made the decision 
they are, by their casting of lots or drawing lots for them, they are recognizing that something that seems to be left somewhat, some people would call this chance. It's not chance. They viewed this as God's sovereignty. Who took the lot? And depending on how you see descriptions of this, it's, I don't think it's actually drawing straws, although today sometimes people draw straws. Whoever gets the shortest straw is the one who's chosen for something. This could have been a bag that had stones in it, and whoever chose the light stone or the dark stone, depending on what they specify, would be chosen. It doesn't tell us which one, but this is their way of doing, uh, of, of going through this process and allowing God to determine who this person would be. And, and this, is, this is really consistent with Israel's history. Uh, the land was distributed by lots. Joshua chapter 18, verse 6, when David in his administration, was dividing up individuals to serve in the house of the Lord. They chose responsibilities based upon the casting of lots. So this is, I'm just saying that this practice is consistent with what Israel did in their history, but in connection with prayer and in connection with these qualifications, this isn't just a, a one element sort of part of the decision. I mean, it isn't just the casting of lots. Sometimes people look at this passage and say, oh, yeah, they cast lots for the 12 apostles. That's really not all they did. They prayed, they sought the Lord's direction, and then they cast lots. And what does the Proverbs say? The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16, 16. This is different from casting votes. This is casting lots. The choice of the lot was leaving in God's hand who this person would be. And when it says the lot fell to Matthias, then they knew. Joseph, equally qualified, just not the person for the office. Would you expect Joseph to continue with them? Well, he continued with to this point. He served to this point. Why would he stop serving? Why would he stop following Christ at this point? Just because he hadn't been chosen by Christ, that meant God had something else for him. But for Matthias, to now be a part of the apostolic company, wow, you would think, what a privilege. Watch what happens to the apostles in the book of Acts. Yes, a great privilege, but with that privilege, responsibility. An opportunity to be a witness to the risen Christ, yes. An opportunity to put, be put in the crosshairs of the leadership there in Jerusalem. An opportunity to be beaten and suffer shame for Christ's name. So yes, an opportunity to be an apostle. An opportunity for suffering to give testimony to Christ. But obviously, an opportunity for glory as well. Because the glory of being able to serve the Lord for all of us, it's such a privilege to just be in God's service as one of God's people. For this man, the grace that God gave, if you think about the city, the heavenly city, the foundations, the gates, yeah, his name is written there. He becomes one of the company of the 12. And now these witnesses are waiting for what God is about to do. And uh, we have been 
brought through in terms of the early uh, church and it's leading up to the day of Pentecost. And when we see what happens in chapter two, it's going to be a wonderful thing that God does to enable his people to witness to the world. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we bow, we thank you that you have a purpose in our lives, in each one of our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you give us opportunity to serve and to follow you. And Lord, for Matthias, this man who was not at all in the limelight to suddenly be propelled into the company of the 12 witnesses of the resurrection. What a privilege. What a responsibility. And we thank you, Lord, for the faithful exercise of his office as well as the other 11 so that we might have even the record of this book of Acts, of what you accomplished through them, a small company. And yet, by eyewitness evidence, gave testimony to the resurrected Lord, turned Jerusalem upside down by the power of your spirit. And we trust, Lord, that in company with them, though we would say no one today could fulfill these same qualifications, we are in company with them as the church of the living God. We are built upon the foundation of these apostles and the prophets, and we thank you, Lord, that we stand on a sure foundation, that their testimony is true, and that we have a resurrected Lord whom we serve today, the one who knows our hearts. And even today, Lord, because you know our hearts, because you see each one of us, we pray that we might have our heart right towards you, that we might have our heart right towards one another, that we might, Lord, truly be united as this group was, united in purpose, directed by the word, partnering together in prayer, and expectantly waiting for you to work. Lord, help us to take on that same mindset and certainly actions by your grace. Give us your help, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.